And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of them was about five thousand. It came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, and they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them, and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Finding, them, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was about forty years old, on whom this miracle of healing was shewed. And being let go, they went to their own company, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that it them is. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage, and why and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. For, un, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were, one, were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Pray with me. Father, we do ask this morning that 
you would speak, that you would speak to us, Lord, the very things you desire for us to hear this morning. Father, I pray that each one of us would remember that your word is profitable, all of it. It's profitable for doctrine, for rebuke. Father, if there is something in the word today that rebukes, Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear it. Father, we praise you that your word not only rebukes, but it corrects and instructs us in righteousness. That we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work here. Father, thank you for your word. We do thank you that it's truth, that we can open the pages of scripture, read, study, learn together as a body of Christ, and walk in this way. May we do that, Father. This day I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Peter and John have been standing trial before the Sanhedrin for the healing of a lame man. And Peter, we saw last week, spoke to the question in Acts 4, verse 7. And they had set him in the midst. By what power or by what name have you done this? And according to the text, in Acts 4, verse 8, Peter speaks, and we, we spoke of this, of how he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That was, that was really an emphasis from last week. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The text gives us the fact that what's about to come out of his mouth is of the Holy Spirit. And so verses 8 through 12 are characteristic of one speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I mention that up front because it's helpful when considering the response of the Jewish leaders. You might remember last week we also used passage in Luke 21. I'd like to read that again. It's appropriate here today. Luke 21, 12 through 15. Jesus speaking telling his followers, you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Now, in verses 8 through 12, Peter is given a mouth and wisdom, is he not? Verses 13 through 22, we're going to see that the adversaries are not able to contradict or resist what's been spoken, what's taken place. There's very little they can do in light of the evidence standing before them. So, we look at verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. All right, so what did they see? The word there says when they saw the boldness to look at, to behold. It's it's a little bit, it's like if you had layers in, in, in the original language, the word see has several different connotations to it. And you probably see that come out best in, in John's passage in the empty tomb, right? When they're going to the tomb and uh, one of them sees from a distance and the other one comes a little closer and sees the linen cloths lying there and is kind of wondering, trying to piece things together. And then the other one saw there was this full understanding of what was going on. There, there's this aspect here in this word of seeing and starting to piece some things together. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. What did they perceive? The word perceive there. To to lay a hold of with the mind. To to understand. What did they perceive here? Well, they perceived that Peter and John were uneducated and untrained men. It's interesting how they perceived that. Something in the way they spoke. Something in the way they looked. Untrained, uneducated, but yet bold in what they're saying. 
And the result here in the text is they marveled. Now, up to this point, church, who's been doing all the marveling? Somebody can answer. It's okay. Who's been marveling? The people. Thank you. The people. Now, we see this same description from the Sanhedrin, from the council. They marveled. Peter and John, what's just been spoken here? They marveled. What did they realize? Or what did they recognize? Right? The text says they realized that they had been with Jesus. You know what? That one, I just love that sentence, don't you? We were talking about it yesterday a little bit in our house. And just how that one verse, that one sentence, that could preach. We could just have a whole message on that one sentence. They realized they had been with Jesus. Now, I believe that what happened here is instructive not only for you as an individual in Christ, but for you all as parts of the body of Christ. Let's keep in mind context. The new community of believers, right, numbered 120, Acts chapter 1. By the end of Acts 2, the new community numbered 3,120, at least, somewhere in that range. And by the beginning of Acts 4, the number of men in the new community numbered around 5,000. Peter and John, as apostolic witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus and leaders in this new community, the Holy Spirit puts individual men forward to see and observe in the text. But for what purpose? That you might just be like Peter? That you might just be like John? I believe the individual intention given to Peter and John, and later on we'll see the Apostle Paul, is given to highlight the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through these men as they point others to the resurrected Christ. This power of the Holy Spirit, church, is the same power that's come upon all those who, by faith, have called upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Where are you going with this? Well, the witness and the testimony you have for the Lord. Do others see it, church? More specifically, do they see your boldness? And we'll see next week, perhaps, linked to this boldness is a commitment to persevere in prayer. Here in the text, the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John. The implication here is that the words in verses 8 through 12 were accompanied by a certain visible presence and confidence. The words spoken were packaged with a visual representation. It was something observable, not just something they heard. The text says that they saw, they took it in. They were able to see it with their own eyes. You know, when the world looks at you, and by the way, the world is watching. The world is watching. They're watching to see what you do. Lord willing, they know who you are. And they're watching. Have you ever noticed in the media how quickly something pops up in the news when someone in ministry falls? You ever notice that? You don't hear oftentimes of the good news of Jesus Christ being proclaimed, but you sure do hear the sins of the people, those who are professed Christians. People are watching. When they observe you, what are they seeing? The Sanhedrin heard Peter speak some words, but they saw something as well. Together, together, the speaking and the visible presence of these men was deemed boldness to those gathered in the Sanhedrin. You know, and I understand Peter and John, they were standing trial before the Sanhedrin. The circumstances are not favorable nor desirable from a human way of thinking. I realize that not many of you here today are probably going to appear before a Jewish governing body in the near future. 
But I'd like you to see and apply this principle in the text to your home, to your work, to relationships in general. Do people see boldness in you? Does your presence and message go together? You know, we live in a culture, and I know there are many of you here that are much more knowledgeable about this than myself. But I recognize it. Can't help but recognize it if you live in this world. We live in a wired community. Social media dominates the landscape. People's words can be put in writing. A button is pushed, and a bunch of people then are privy to those words. Pictures can be sent, and I imagine videos too, right, can also be sent into space for others to see and watch. Some of you write blogs, wonderful blogs, by the way. Others of you subscribe, perhaps, to certain blog writers of your choosing. One of the potential dangers in a wired community is that you lose the visible presence of the Lord. The visible. You can read, you can write about the Lord and praise the Lord. Some of you here are doing that very thing. But it does not and must not replace the face-to-face interaction with another brother or sister. Contentment with a wired way of living. It's characteristic of the individual spirit, I believe. That's alive and well today. The Sanhedrin saw something in Peter and John. They observed them physically, heard them audibly. Collectively, the text says that they saw the boldness of Peter and John. The word of God, church, can penetrate the coldest heart, amen? The word of God can do that. A wired community can provide greater opportunity for the word to go forth. And I say amen to that. Those of you that are doing it, wonderful. That's great. But a wired community alone can create a culture of individuals. God's word describes the church as a connected body. Not connected in the sense of wired, but connected in the sense of fellowship, Acts 2.42 kind of connectedness. The church is to be devoted to a fellowship, the breaking of bread, to prayers, to the apostles' teaching. And these are things we participate in together. Koinonia, fellowship, happens in the context of believers coming together. We share what we have in common. That's Christ. That's the center of our conversation. We share our lives together and talk of what the Lord is doing across the table, face to face, in the home, on the front porch, which is turning into my favorite place to be. Wherever it may be for you. And young people, I, I just this isn't here, but this, is, this needs to be spoken. We have time on Sunday afternoons, young people. And I want to encourage you in this very thing I'm talking about. What you have in common with that friend of yours. And some of you young people like to be here. And Lord willing, you like to be here because you you want to be together and and worship the Lord. I know you also like some of the friends are here. And praise the Lord, you've got friends here. That's great. I want to encourage you to use the time that you have, though. Not simply when when we're done here in the morning to just dart out the door and and go on the swing and, and play. Think about the time that you have, young people. How can you encourage a friend of yours here? Friend, how can you encourage that friend? In the Lord. How do we relate to one another? This is not just dad and mom speak. This is for young people. Okay, my little announcement there, I guess. I I just, I felt compelled to be able to share that and to encourage young people in that. To let them know this word of God is for, for, for you as well. Well, the word preached. 
You know, there's a, these things that we share together on Sunday. They ought to be and serve as an occasion for sharing them together throughout the week. And you know, it's true, we have a, a main connect point, which is here on Sunday morning. But is the word of God being encouraged among the body? I, I was challenged on this point this week, and I, and I was stirred to do something about it. And I don't know what the Lord will, will have it end up being, but... You know, I'd like to simply make myself available to meet with, with men, or, or, you know, in particular, and out of, a, out of a Sunday, whether it's a Monday, it makes sense to be a Monday. I, I, know, I know different schedules are, 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 people are gone in the mornings and what have you, but the purpose essentially would be to unpack the message preached on Sunday, to speak of what the Lord taught you, well, to, to explore how the Lord might desire to apply the text preached into your life, and what would the Lord have you do differently as a result of God's word preached? The idea is not only to meet together, but, but to sharpen one another in being doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. You see, we've got a lot of hearers. Lord willing, you're, you're sitting in the chair and you're hearing what's being spoken. But the church is also, James 1, 1.22 says, we're to be a body of doers. Not doers as in, i got to do more activity. Doers in the sense of obedience to what the word of God says. Hearing is to be followed up by doing. Hearing is to be followed by obedience to Christ and his commandments. And this obedience, 1 John says, is not burdensome. Look back at Acts 4.13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men... They marveled. They perceived something about these men standing before them. They came to understand something, to lay hold of something with the mind. They saw boldness, but perceived them to be uneducated. They were unversed in learning. The particular learning of the Jewish schools of the day. They spoke differently, perhaps. They were untrained. They were common folk. They had no rank or position. And yet what they were hearing from these guys stood out. And you know, I was reminded of how, just in the same way the council was puzzled, I was drawn to John chapter 7. Turn to John chapter 7. The Jews marveled. Jesus goes up to the temple. And the Jews marvel, saying, how does this man, talking about Jesus, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God, or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. Let's read that again. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. You see, the Jews in John 7 marveled at Jesus and the things he spoke. The Jewish leaders here in Acts chapter 4 marvel as well at the words spoken by Peter and John. How can men like that speak boldly? How can commoners, a fisherman, no less, Talk and act like this. Well, the scripture gives us an answer, I believe. Corinthians chapter 1. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not. To bring to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Look at one more thing in verse 13. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. They, they took knowledge. Epigonosco. They took knowledge of them. In other words, what they were seeing and hearing, they recognized, this is good, they recognized in the life of Jesus. They're talking, Peter's speaking, 
And they're starting to piece this together. And what they're hearing and what they're seeing looked and sounded a lot like this man not too long ago they put away. Or so they thought. Jesus. You see, Jesus spoke with authority while he walked the earth. He spoke with this same boldness when encountered by the religious leaders. The Sanhedrin is experiencing a rewind of sorts right now. You ever had one of those moments? A rewind moment? Something happens that happened previously. And in this particular instance, this would not have been a pleasant scenario for the council. These guys are sounding and looking an awful lot like Jesus. Praise the Lord! (laughs) That's great! Something we too need to be about, right? The Sanhedrin, they're at a loss as to how to respond. And church, can, can the people in the world around you, can they clearly see that you've been with Jesus? Do, do people at your workplace recognize you've been with Jesus? How about the home? Here's, here's where it all comes down, right here. The home. The true test. Does your spouse recognize that you've been with Jesus? I'll give you an assignment today, men. Ask your wives that question. Wives, be honest. Wives, ask your husbands that question. Husbands, be honest. Do your children recognize that you've been with Jesus? Is the aroma of Christ evident to those around you? You see, this verse is a catalyst for, I believe, much-needed repentance. With all the spiritual blessings available to us in Christ, having the Word of God, the truth, at our disposal, with the Holy Spirit in us, providing the power necessary to witness to Jesus, why is there so little recognition of Jesus in His own followers? Isn't the goal, isn't one of the big objectives and ideas to walk as Christ himself walked? 1 John 2, 6. Isn't the objective to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are his words, church, becoming an increasing measure your words? Are his ways becoming an increasing measure your ways? Does your life resemble Jesus, the one whom you profess to believe and follow? This one whom you call the Lord of your life. Is he in charge of what goes on in your life or not? The Sanhedrin recognized that these men had been with Jesus. In the context, Peter and John is only part of the problem, though, for the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. (laughs) We're told here that the man who had been lame is right there next to Peter and John. I love this. He's right there. It's interesting here to consider the implications of the healed man being put away in custody with Peter and John overnight. Perhaps. We don't know. Perhaps that was the case. I tend to believe it, it happened that way. It it seems to me, according to the text, that they did lock up this man with Peter and John. I mean, think about it. If they let this guy go, this guy, what's he been doing? He's been walking and leaping and praising God. Guess what he's going to do if he's set free? He's going to be telling other people about what Jesus did. Name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. How'd you get well? The name of Jesus. Do you think they want that out? No, I believe he was locked up too. Poor guy. He'd just been healed, and now he gets put away. But for good purpose, all the Lord's purpose and testimony. You see, a man like that was dangerous to the governing authorities. The Sanhedrin, this is interesting, they outnumber the threesome in their midst. They are more learned 
more educated. They hold a high position of authority in Jerusalem. And yet what goes on right here in Acts chapter 4 is something out of their control. See, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that these men have been with Jesus. Right next to them is the man who has been healed. The evidence for the healing is literally standing right there. Standing. That's the evidence, the fact he's standing. Because he's never done that before. So what's next for the Sanhedrin? What do you say to all the evidence before you? What do you have to say to that? Look at the text. Acts 4.15. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. Okay, so instead of replying to Peter and John, they opt to retreat. But they can't let Peter and John and the former lame man see them sweat. That wouldn't be good, would it? So they have them command them to go aside out of the council. They're at a loss as to what to say and to do with these men. And, and you know, I believe right here, this part of the text is instructive for us as well. When someone puts forth the word of God to you, see, see this, is, this is one of the, the values of the scripture. Because sometimes when you read this text, perhaps you read this text and, and you were pointing fingers at, at the religious leaders. Oh, look at them. Look what they're doing. Wait a minute. Let's think about how this applies to us too. Because see, when someone puts forth the word of truth to you, is it your tendency to retreat and gather with others? This happens. Don't think this doesn't happen. And go and find other people who are going to agree with you. I don't like what so-and-so had to say. Well, So-and-so, all they had to say was what the word had to say. And you go and you retreat. You get together, people who are going to agree with you. When the word of God speaks to you, is there any kind of retreat going on in your spirit? Do you feel the need to just get away when you're confronted by the truth of God's word? This retreat mode, I believe, is a sign... something very familiar pride see instead of receiving the truth put forward you want to escape it you want to get away from it you don't like the fact that someone has exposed the sin in your life you don't like the fact that this word has exposed the sin in your life John chapter 3 Jesus says, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. What were the deeds being exposed this day in Acts chapter 4? Well, the Sanhedrin brings Peter and John, the former lame man, in their midst. The intention is to question them, to examine them about the healing. And yet the Lord orchestrates only as the Lord can do. He orchestrates an interesting twist on this day. Instead of exposing the deeds of Peter and John, what the text shows us is that the deeds of the Sanhedrin are exposed. What are those deeds? The sin of unbelief. These men love darkness more than they love the light of truth. Luke 21, 15. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You see, the people with the highest positions, titles in the land are pressed into silence. The ones who thought they were in control of the proceedings find themselves now confronted with the Lord's power. Their control is bumping up against the Lord's sovereign control and they're having an awful time submitting to His authority. The authority of the Sanhedrin 
is subdued in the presence of Peter and John and this former lame man. Is this not a picture of the Lord and his power at work? A picture of, of the Lord, of God's wisdom, God's power at work. Corinthians chapter 1. Notice what the text says at the end of verse 15. They conferred among themselves. So, having commanded the threesome to step aside, please. The Sanhedrin confers among themselves. To, to a group representative of unbelief, ungodliness is characteristic. When ungodliness is manifesting itself in your life, wonderful definition, ungodliness, living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory, or of one's dependence on God. When ungodliness is manifesting itself in your life, pride is the natural result. I mean, think about it. When you don't accept and receive the truth of Jesus Christ, and the truth of His Word, when you think little, or you think none of God, or the Scriptures, you're going to default to pride. Self. You know, I like the picture of an author describes of a tree and as you're, you're, you're drawing a picture of the tree and, and oftentimes we think that pride is the root of, of the sins in our lives and, and while it's no doubt close to that ungodliness, if you picture the tree and, and the root system being ungodliness and the trunk of that tree then being pride and then out of, the, out of pride come all those visible right, all, all the, the branches and the fruit, everything the stuff that comes out on the tree that can be seen it comes out of that trunk of pride. Where does pride come from? Well, it comes because your root system is ungodly. Because you don't think much at all about God. You don't think very much at all about God's will. You don't think very much at all about your dependence upon God. So when you are ungodly, default kicks in. Default is pride. I'm going to think about myself. Well, we know when we think about ourselves, what usually ends up happening? Sin. So here's this group of 71 and they're going to compound their ungodliness at this point. Look at 16 and 17. What shall we do to these men? That's an incredible question. For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. You see, it sounds good when they're huddled together, doesn't it? I find it wonderful that Peter and John... And the former lame man are gone from the council at this point. And yet, we still have recorded for us some of the words spoken in that private council. Praise the Lord for that. The question on the table is this. What shall we do to these men? The question is not, hey, hey, guys, what did you think about what you just heard and saw? Do you think any... Any truth there in what they just had to say? It wasn't open for discussion that perhaps they could have been wrong. The question posed to the council seems to assume that Peter and John are in the wrong. It assumes that something needs to be done to them in light of what they spoke, in light of what they did. You know, this reminds me of the proverb writer, chapter 26, verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Or Proverbs 29 20. Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Confronted with the truth of God's word and rebuked for their own unbelief, the Sanhedrin opts to be wise in their own eyes. They opt to be hasty with their words. 
to do it their way. But I believe there's also a little bit of Proverbs 29.10 wrapped up in this. The bloodthirsty hate the blameless. But the upright seek his well-being. We see how they responded to Jesus. And if they hated Jesus, they will hate those who follow Jesus, right? John chapter 15. And yet, just like Jesus, his followers are to seek those who are lost and in need of the truth of Jesus. And so here's what they put on the table in their private council. Let's get this. Here's what they put on the table. They're meeting together. They put these four things. There's four of them right in the text. I didn't make them up. A notable miracle, a remarkable miracle has been done. That's number one. Second, this miracle has been done through them, Peter and John. Third thing, this miracle is evident. It's well known to all who dwell in Jerusalem. That guy who used to sit by the gate, everybody knew that guy. He's there all the time. This is well known. Everybody in Jerusalem, anybody who's anybody in Jerusalem knows this guy and knows about it. Fourth, we cannot deny the miracle. Those last words are piercing, church. And yet, what do they do? Verse 17. But so that it spreads no further among the people. That's the concern, isn't it? So that it spreads no further among the people. You see, they like the fact they're in control and don't want a bunch of commoners teaching the people and preaching in the name of Jesus. You know, there's another miracle other than the one here we're talking about in Acts chapter 4. There's another miracle that's recorded in the Bible. Many of you, most of you, perhaps, hopefully, all of you know about it. And cannot, many in our world today try, but like the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, they can't speak a word against it. And yet they've chosen to remain in unbelief. It's the miracle church of Christ's resurrection. Some 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years, give or take, have gone by and people have tried to disprove and discount the resurrection of Jesus, but none have been able to do so. None. I haven't heard of any. I've heard of a lot of attempted... None of them. Speaking to the point of resurrection, it reminds me of what's missing here. What's seemingly missing, and when I'm saying what's missing, I'm not saying the Lord forgot something. I'm saying what's missing from the Sanhedrin, the council. Seems to me there would be something very important they would want to bring out in this particular trial, other than by what power or what name have you done these things. Remember back in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, when they came upon Peter, John, while they were speaking? Verse 2 says, greatly disturbed. What were they greatly disturbed about? That they taught the people, first of all. Secondly, that they preached in Jesus, what? The resurrection from the dead. We see evidence in Acts 4.17 that the Sanhedrin is concerned... Not whether the word is true, but that it's stopped from spreading further among the people. But do you notice what's missing? No mention of preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 18. They called him back in. Okay, guys, we're all done. You can come on in now. So they come in and they stand and, and they command them not to speak at all. Don't say a peep. Don't, don't, don't say a word. Nor teach. In the name of Jesus. If the resurrection from the dead is what greatly disturbed them in Acts 4, verse 2, to the point of locking them up, putting them away for the night, why isn't there any evidence put forth at this time regarding the truth of the resurrection? Wouldn't the trial be prime time to put forth the truth? Let's just settle the matter right here for these wayward follower, commoner, fisherman folk. And let them know what the truth is about the resurrection. Do you notice how much is said about the resurrection here? Zero. Nothing. Why? 
If they were so greatly disturbed about it, why wouldn't they desire to teach truth about it? I got an answer. Luke 21. They can't contradict it. They can't resist it. They have nothing to say. You see, they didn't like it, but they couldn't contradict it. They got rid of Jesus too, not because he was speaking blasphemy, but because they didn't like what he came to do. His words and his actions and the influence that he held among the people, the religious leaders disliked their loss of stature and power while Jesus was around. They were uncomfortable with this man alive, and so they simply got rid of him. Now, they got rid of him, understanding all that under the orchestrated under the umbrella of the sovereign Lord, right, who was orchestrating it all. That uncomfortable feeling. That's what happens when sinful man intersects with perfect holiness. <laughs> you see, they had a hard time with Jesus, didn't they? You start to realize... Something different is here. Something, something is different about this person. He makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and so instead of conforming to Christ, they just dismiss Christ. Tell me, when you dismiss Christ from the equation, is that going to make you comfortable? Whew, got rid of him. Is that going to make you comfortable? You see what we're learning about the Sanhedrin and the council today. I hope and I pray that we don't just read it and point fingers at them and go, oh man, I can't believe they did that. Because by principle, there are some of these same things that you and I do. Are you uncomfortable with what the word says? Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Are you ready just to just dismiss it? Do what you want to do? The problem is this. See, when they crucified Christ, they didn't get rid of their problem. They multiplied their problem. Multiplied it. Now, following the resurrection of Jesus, Peter and John and the thousands now that make up the new community. They are, by faith, in the name of Jesus, beginning to live like Jesus. They're recognizable in the same camp with that man Jesus. The guy they just got rid of some days ago. They thought it was all over. And now these two guys show up along with the third guy standing next to him, And they start to look and recognize things that they're seeing and hearing. It's much like Jesus. Well, I got news for the Sanhedrin. It's not only these couple guys. There's over 5,000 of them now. They're all starting to look and live like Jesus. Church, that's what we're to look like. Do you look like Jesus? Are your words and actions being changed in increasing measure to look like Jesus? Are you more like Jesus today than you were last year? Some of you have been saved 15, 20, 30, 40 years. As you look back on that time, you see fruit, you see sanctification happen. The Lord pulling you, drawing you away from things maybe you used to do, things you don't have any desire to do now. That's a praise. By the way, that's a, that's a praise to the Lord. That's not, look what I did. That's a praise to the Lord for dragging you and pulling you away from those things that once were a snare to you. You see, I believe this, what we're talking about right here, this is intended, I believe, to be a picture of normalcy in the life of the church. This ought to not be some abnormal thing. We ought to be looking like 
today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day, we ought to be looking a lot like Jesus. We ought to be acting a lot like Jesus. Acts 4.18 says they called and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. And I want you to see something here. This command stands directly opposed to the command of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, remember? Wait till you get the power. And with the power you're going to be what? Witness to me. Matthew 28. Based upon the authority been granted to me by my Father, Jesus says, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And though I am with you always into the end of the age. So, how are Peter and John going to respond to such a command from the Sanhedrin? Whose voice are they going to listen to? And that's a question for you today as well. Whose voice are you going to listen to? Well, I came across a couple disturbing, interesting articles. Really spoke to this issue of whose voice. Some of you may have heard of the suit that was passed against Chick-fil-A. Anybody hear about that story? Yeah, this uh, state of Illinois, it's interesting, they file a suit against Chick-fil-A, and just, um, it's interesting, words like, um, although I'd like to be treated equally and with dignity and respect at Chick-fil-A restaurants, the company's widely Published corporate philosophy, culture, and policies make clear to me that as an unmarried homosexual in a non-traditional family unit, I am inferior to married heterosexuals and therefore unwelcome, objectionable, and unacceptable to Chick-fil-A. Now, I don't believe Chick-fil-A would say that in those words. But, in fact, they do have recorded in this some actual quotes from Dan Cathy, COO. Here's what he says. As an organization, we operate on biblical principles. So that is what we claim to be. We are based on biblical principles. We're very much supportive of the biblical definition of the family unit. We are a family-owned business and a family-led business, and we are married to our first wives. Praise the Lord for that. We give God thanks for that. Chick-fil-A's mission is to take biblical truth and put skin on it. We're talking about how our performance in the workplace should be the focus of how we build respect, rapport, and relationships with others that opens the gateway to interest people in knowing God. All throughout the New Testament, there is an evangelism strategy related to our performance in the workplace. Our work should be an act of worship. Our work should be on our mission field. We are inviting God's judgment on our nation when we shake our fist at him and say, we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. Those are all from Dan Cathy. Isn't that great? But then this person who's filing the suit, I know that my family and I are looked down upon, loathed, unwelcome, in light of these comments. And then, and then gets to the end here. And I, I just, in violation of code or whatever, as a result of Chick-fil-A's corporate policies, which have been both directly and indirectly published by the company's executive officers, I am being denied a public accommodation free from discrimination against me. That's what's put forth. Now, hold that. I don't want to bring up... In Minnesota, there is a minor league baseball team in the Twin Cities... The St. Paul Saints. Anybody hear this story? Well, for one night, they're going to become the Mr. Paul Aints in, in August in honor of atheism. The team and this group called the Minnesota Atheists have announced. The stadium will be adorned with banners promoting both Minnesota atheists and American atheists. We have a table with free swag stickers hosted by the Minnesota Atheist members at the front gate to greet fans. It's going to be a splendid night from what I'm, what I'm hearing. 
It's going to be a great evening. In a statement to Fox Sports North, team general manager, listen to this. And I want you to think about what was just read by Chick-fil-A guy. The general manager of this team, Derek Shar, said the team has worked with hundreds and hundreds of faith-based groups over the years. So, quote, when we were approached by the Minnesota atheists, we felt like it was within our nature to be inclusive and certainly work with them to provide them the opportunity to provide their message in the same way. End quote. The Minnesota atheists said the players will wear special game jerseys with the new name. The new name. So instead of the saints, they're going to have on their jersey, ain'ts. And those jerseys, by the way, in case you're interested, they're going to be auctioned during the game. There'll be an option to order any of those. Proceeds from those jerseys are going to benefit the Minnesota atheists. Whose voice are you listening to? See, on one hand, it's the mentality of Jesus and, you know, that general manager. Well, we've opened it up to all kinds of faith-based groups. We want to give them an opportunity as well. Jesus is okay as long as we accommodate every other wind of doctrine that comes along. Jesus is allowed as, only, as long as it can be mixed in with a dose of atheism. There's only a problem with that. They don't mix. On the other hand, to state your beliefs, corporate policies, says Chick-fil-A, can get you into trouble, can't it? Isn't it incredible to think that people argue and fuss over the definitions of biblical marriage? It's interesting how easily people get offended. They feel discriminated against. Why? Because the word of God is truth and the state of man is in rebellion against his creator. That's why. What he has spoken is not good enough for man. The voice of the natural man is being spoken, but the word of the Lord has already been spoken. Let God be true. Let every man a liar. And the Bible says that the natural man cannot discern the things of the spirit, of spiritually discerned things. He cannot. It's not possible. So in that being said, it ought not surprise us when we hear of these things. Look at Acts 4, 19 and 20. Peter and John answered, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, if we were to take the time, we could come up with quite a list of things that Peter and John had seen and heard up to this point. The response from Peter and John is pretty clear. There is one voice of truth. One. Peter says, we are under obligation to speak of the things we've seen and heard. Do you remember those guys who were going to get thrown into the fiery furnace? Whether he saves us or not, we want you to know we're not bowing down. No turning back on this. They speak it boldly. He's either my Lord or he's not my Lord. To listen to your voice, to the council, would be, would mean disobedience to the clear call and command of my Lord. You judge men whether it's right, whether it's just, for us to listen to your message or to God's message. And once again, the, the boldness of Peter and John is put on display in their response. The Spirit of God is mightily at work in these men. And look at the conclusion of the text for today. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them. I love that. 
finding no way of punishing them. Why? Because of the people. Since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. You see, the Sanhedrin threatens them further. Now, you don't go out. They just heard what Peter and John said. The text says they threatened them further. Can you picture what that would have looked like, sounded like? Well, I don't want to hear you teaching in that name again. Now go. Get out of here. I mean, what, what, what could they do? It says that they, didn't, they couldn't find a way to punish them because of the people. That's why they released them, right? Why? Because of the people. Since they all glorified God for what had been done. They didn't want to be seen as the lone bad guys in this situation. Might not look good among the people. Couldn't have that. Reminds me of how they handled Jesus, by the way. They waited for the opportune time away from the people. Before they arrested him. It's interesting that they released Peter and John because of the people's response to the miracle healing. Because you see, they arrested them initially because they were greatly disturbed about this resurrection preaching, spreading among the people. Verse 17. So what we're seeing is a group of religious leaders catering to the people. It's a familiar theme. On one hand, they recognize punishment for Peter and John is wrong, not because they've been won over by the truth of Christ, but because of the response from the people, a people they're striving to control, people they desire to lord over, a people they desire to manipulate, a people they themselves want to teach, a people they desire to please. Church, listen to Luke 23, 22 24. By the way, these are words of Pilate. He says, I've found no reason for death in him. That's Christ. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. Church, Whose voice are you going to listen to? Are you going to cater to the crowd? Are you going to be a crowd pleaser, jockeying for position, prestige, power? Are you going to bounce back and forth on where you stand, depending upon the people around you? You know, we were at basketball camp a few weeks ago. I took the boys. You know what's interesting about the game Simon Says? and They, they teach them individual fundamental skills with the game Simon Says. Right? Simon Says, pass. And it... Simon says, rebound, they jump up. You know what's interesting about that game? And I was watching, I was observing. That when the instruction would be called out, Simon says, front pivot, right foot. Instead of people front pivoting on the right foot, what'd they do? They looked around. They looked around at the person next to them. They maybe would start, but then they would want to see, is Johnny going to turn that way too? Because I don't want to be the only guy that turns that way. It's a little silly example, but at the same time, how often do we do the same thing? How often are we looking at people to determine what we're going to do? Instead, we've been given direction what we're supposed to be doing right here. This is what the Word says. This is the voice we need to heed. See, it's basing decision-making upon this word and not the popular opinion of the day. Peter already put this forward in Acts chapter 1. This ought to be something we pin up and post up and, and recognize this right out of the gate in Acts chapter 1. See, how the church was going to operate from this day forward. When they replaced Judas with Matthias, they did so not because they thought it just was a good idea. They did so because of what the word of God said. They took action that day in Acts 1 because thus says the Lord. The decisions for the church in the days ahead would be patterned after the word and voice of truth. And many voices are clamoring for your attention, church. But as the song is out, many of you will recognize the lyrics. It fits right here. The voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth says, do not be afraid. 
the voice of truth says, this is for my glory, not me, his. Out of all the voices calling out to me, and this ought to be a declaration for all of us right here, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. Church, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Kings and kingdoms are going to pass away. But there's something about this name, Jesus. Whose voice are you going to listen to? We're going to sing. Oh, church, arise. First line. Put your armor on. Here it is. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. That's the voice. He's our leader. Let's hear his voice. Let's walk in his truth. And together, let's follow Jesus and be about his work. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray. And then we'll sing. Father, I thank you for this word of truth. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be clear today as we have heard your word. That we would ask of ourselves, whose voice are we listening to? Father, I pray today that we would be challenged and encouraged to listen and be attentive to your voice. Father, I pray that we would understand that everyone on the side of truth hears your voice. May we walk in that way. May we delight walking in that way. And may others see us walking in that way, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And may we, as we do these things, Lord, exhibit the Spirit of Christ in a world that so desperately needs to see Jesus. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.